So as you might have gathered, uh, we have a Christmas sermon series. It's called From Angels We Have Heard. Uh, from the hymn, from Angels We Have Heard on High, I think we sang that, uh, and that those are actually the notes. I think Ben uh, did the notes of the first bar of the music because uh, our focus, kind of the way that we're going to enter into the Christmas story, is looking at the scenes uh, with the angels involved. There's actually all of the main scenes. Uh, angels show up to speak to all of the main characters, in a sense, the people in the story of Christmas. Uh, we're going to see Zechariah today, and then Mary, Joseph, uh, the shepherds, and the wise men. Kind of throughout our series, we're going to look at each scene, and that means we're going to be talking a bit about angels. So I thought we should start by, you know, making sure we understand who angels are, what they are. So what are they? Well, first of all, uh, angels, just so we're clear, are real, okay? Uh, they're not mythological beings. They're not centaurs or hippogriffs. They, they are real. Uh, they are created beings. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, uh, you are the Lord, you alone you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their host. And that's another word for angels, the heavenly host. So God made angels. They are created beings, uh, but they are spiritual beings. Uh, usually they are invisible. And there's that great story in 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, where Elisha is surrounded by the Syrian army, and he's very worried because, you know, he's, he's surrounded. He's going to He's in a bad way, but then God uh, opens his eyes and he sees that on the, on the outside of the Syrian army is an angelic army, the host of heaven there to, to protect him. And so what was uh, invisible, God helped him to see that they were there. They're spiritual beings, uh, have no bodies usually, usually invisible, but there are times when they are given bodies. Hebrews 13, 2 says, uh, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So it could be that there are times you're talking to someone, helping someone seem real, seem like a human being with a body, but in fact, they are an angel. Uh, that is also possible. So we, we see a lot of uh, interesting things about angels in the Bible. Uh, they have a rank and order and names. Michael is the archangel, so sort of the, the head of the angels. Gabriel is an angel that we meet back in the book of Daniel. We're going to meet him again in our text, uh, speaking to Zechariah. So what about the, the purpose? What, what purposes do angels serve? Well, uh, we see that they are there to guard and protect God's people. Uh, Psalm 91.11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Uh, so my, uh, I have one angel story that I know of, there probably are others that I don't know of, uh, that I think is an angel story. My friends and I, driving to Whistler in our early 20s, in a Jeep along the early morning roads, heading up the upper levels highway, it's icy, it's foggy, and I'm in the back seat of this Jeep looking kind of forward, my friend's driving, and uh, out of the fog emerges, you know, we're going pretty quick, um, a vehicle is in the fast lane, just stopped there, broken down, something like that, and there's a beat where I think, you know, you assume the driver's going to see it and kind of veer, but he, he's kind of zoned out. My friend Jim zoned out for that moment uh, while he was driving. So in the next beat, I started yelling. And my friend started yelling, Jim, Jim! And he kind of woke up or whatever he was doing and, and swerved hard into the slow lane and back. Didn't, we didn't, you know, spin out. We didn't crash. And we were all awake there and reflecting on what we saw. And we were like, what, what was that? And we all remember seeing someone... Uh, standing in front of the car. And my buddy Jimmy's like, I think, I think that was an angel. 
I mean, there's no way we should have been able to turn and not crash. I mean, and why would there be a guy if you broke down? Why would you stand in the middle of the road? That must have been an angel. Now, we don't know for sure. All of us would probably, I would say, yeah, I, I think that's an angel, not just because of what I saw, but because that's, that's what they do. They are God's invisible warriors, messengers come to protect his people, and that's the kind of thing they tend to do. So uh, that's something that you could argue about, but that, that tends to be the kinds of angel stories that we hear. It, it helps us to, to know that God is at work. It's good and right for us to pray, Lord, please send your angels to protect me. The idea of a guardian angel is a biblical idea. But they actually have some even greater purposes. Angels show the greatness of God's love for us. In this sense, God did not spare the angels who were disobedient, but he spared us. Look in 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and the argument goes on, then we should be all the more amazed at the grace that God has shown us. God is completely just in condemning the angels that disobeyed him, and he would be completely just in condemning us as well, but he shows us grace. Being able to compare and contrast shows us the depth of God's love. Lastly, they, they carry out the plans of God. This is what we see mostly in the Christmas story, that they come bringing messages from God to people, and all of this starts with Zechariah. So who is Zechariah? Uh, here's the first bit of our text. Uh, Brock read it nicely for us. We're going to work our way through it. Uh, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Zechariah was a, was a priest from a small town. Uh, you could think of it uh, kind of like a, a small town pastor and his wife in the hill country of, of Israel. Uh, there were about 8,000 priests at the time in Israel, 24 divisions. He was in the division of Abijah. Uh, they are called righteous, walking blamelessly in all the commands of God, which doesn't mean they were sinless, doesn't mean they were perfect, but it does mean that they were faithful, that they weren't just talking the talk, they were walking the walk of their, of their faith, which is saying something uh, because the road that God had called them to walk was a difficult one. Uh, verse 7 says this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, a couple who wants children but isn't able to have them, that's always a difficult situation, always a heartbreaking situation, which is why, uh, just as an aside, we need to be very careful, very sensitive how we speak about children with young couples around us. Uh, in this sinful, fallen world, it's not always uh, easy or successful to, to conceive. And so we have to be sensitive about that. But back in those days, uh, there was an additional layer of hardship on top of just the disappointment of not having a child and that was the overt uh, public shame that women would feel in this situation and the sense that it's somehow a punishment from God. You can see this if we jump to like the last verse, uh, verse 25, where Elizabeth is talking. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So that's how she considered her condition, her barrenness, a reproach, uh, which brings a sense of disapproval, a sense of condemnation. This is what she would have felt every day in that small town. And they were uh, advanced in years, which, which probably means post-menopausal, probably means that there's, the door to children is no longer open. But notice, they were, they're still called blameless. They, they, 
They had accepted their lot in life. They, they didn't seem to be bitter. They didn't seem to be angry at God, but, but they must have long since given up hope that they would ever have, ever have a child. And this kind of ties into our first point, which is this. Sometimes, sometimes it seems like the time for hope is gone. Uh, we see this in the circumstances of life for Zechariah and for Elizabeth, and we also see it in the circumstances of life for God's people. So remember, verse 1, it said that these were the days of Herod, king of Judea, uh, which means by that point, Rome had been in charge of the Mediterranean region for some time. Okay, the people of God were by that point used to being oppressed by someone else, some other world power. Uh, in fact, it, it's been about 800 years since the time of Hosea. That's when, you know, the people of God were still a legitimate nation kind of hanging on. And now 800 years had passed. They were no longer a nation, really. They were an oppressed people. It had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet to his people. Since they had heard from God, 400 years had passed. So they were still praying faithfully. They were still, you know, going to the temple. They were still sacrificing. But the immediacy of their hope, I think we'd have to say, was wearing very thin. So much so that when, when some of the answers, the things they've been praying for, actually arrives, I mean, people don't even believe it. That's what we're going to see with, with Zechariah. He can't even receive it because he doesn't really actually believe that things are going to happen. See, what the Bible is doing here, and, and many times throughout the Bible, it recognizes that, that there will be seasons of life like this for God's people, where it seems like the time for hopefulness and optimism is past. It's, it's not that we've necessarily abandoned our faith, denied God, but the circumstances of life make, make it difficult to believe that God is actually caring for us, like tangibly, practically, that he's actually hearing our prayers and bringing good into our lives. And I think there's a, a bit of a spectrum when it comes to this kind of experience. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think, would have been at the top end of the spectrum. Okay, they had, they had accepted their lot in life. They didn't seem like they were overly bitter or angry, but still there was some, we're going to see, there's uh, parts of their faith where they, they was thin. Okay, they were still feeling it. But, but hopeless times uh, can bring us to a very dark place, a very hopeless place. Where, where it's difficult, even for those of us who've had a strong faith, even for those of us who've been trying to walk in obedience, it's difficult for us to, to still have hope. There's a man named Adoniram Judson uh, that went through this. There's a picture of him, lived uh, a long time ago. Uh, he, was, he was one of the first Christian missionaries to Southeast Asia, uh, to Burma, to Myanmar, as it's called today. Uh, he was a man of incredible conviction, incredible faith. Uh, he brought his whole family. He just had a passion to go on mission. Uh, married a woman who felt the same way. He brought his whole, his wife Nancy, all their kids uh, overseas to go on mission. They were excited. They were eager for this. Uh, he said this about his leaving uh, and writing to a friend. He said, we were dissuaded by all our friends, but we commended ourselves to God. So all the people who knew them were saying, what are you doing? I mean, this was the time there wasn't a lot of overseas missions. They were going out into the unknown, totally disconnected. All, you can imagine all their friends and family saying, look, pray for them. You can pray for those people. Don't go there. Don't take my grandchildren there. What do you, right? There's a lot of dissuasion. But he said, no. No, we're committing ourselves to the Lord. Jesus said, go and make disciples. We're going to do that. William Carey, who was another one of the first uh, missionaries, here's how he described them when, he, when they came over. He met them. He said, they are just cut out for this mission. 
I thought so as soon as I first met them. In six months, Mr. Judson had a splendid grasp of the language and is the very colleague I wanted. So a lot of affirmation. These are the kind of people we want. They're encouraged. They're excited for what God was doing. They're faithful. But 14 years on the mission field took a severe toll. I mean, just getting there, if you read through the account, just trying to find a place to set up, to, to learn the language and the culture, all of it, incredibly difficult. Uh, Adoniram injured several um, illnesses, some very cruel imprisonments where, where he uh, wouldn't have survived if his wife hadn't come and brought him food in prison. They didn't feed him. And she had to bribe the guards, please give him some food just to keep him alive. There was huge opposition by government authorities in the different places they were, and, and there, was, there was death, a lot of death. By the year 1828, everyone close to Adoniram had died. His missionary partners that he came with, his other couple, they died within a year or two. Uh, all of his children died. Even the ones that were then born on the missions field, they died, and his wife finally died in 1828. And he descended into a dark depression. He struggled with regret, struggled with sorrow, sense of loss. And, and for three years, he struggled with these feelings. At, at its sort of peak, uh, he went out into the jungle. They describe, he went out into the jungle, this tiger-infested part of the jungle, by himself for 40 days, built a little hut, and he, and he dug a grave. And he describes just staring into it, contemplating uh, the decay of the human body. Like he was in a very, very dark place. And, and that's what happens sometimes with people who were faithful. He's a faithful, obedient man of God. And yet was brought to a place where he, he would have said the time for hope has long passed. And, and it was unclear whether he would ever have that hope again. Now hearing that is, I mean, it's good for us to hear these stories of people who've gone and been faithful, but some of the challenges, it seems very unfamiliar to us, I think, right? To try to picture yourself in that position, that extremity of situation. But I do think we can identify with the struggle of being disappointed in life, of, of having that sense that things are not working out like we thought they would, even though we've been trying to be faithful, even though we've been, we've been in prayer, we've been seeking God's wisdom, we've been trying to go in the direction that God is leading us, but still things are falling apart or not coming together. Maybe we feel regret at some of the decisions we've made. Maybe we feel frustrated at what God hasn't done. Maybe it's a, a mixture of the two which brings a sense of hopelessness, a sense that the time, the time for hope is gone. If God was going to do anything, he would have done it. And it's hard to get out of that kind of emotional and spiritual hole. Even if it's not that deep a hole. Think of Zechariah. Zechariah wasn't digging graves, right? He wasn't going out. He wasn't that despondent, isolating himself. But, but clearly there was, um, there was a gap in, in his faith. His faith wasn't as complete as he thought it was because when the angel brings this amazingly good news, Zechariah, look what God is doing. He can't even receive it. Which, which tells us there's, he wasn't in the heart, sort of identifying with the heart of God the way that he thought he was, perhaps. It's a sign, right, that, that there was some hopelessness in him and I think we know what that's like. So what do we do in that kind of a situation? Well, there are two things that helped Adoniram Judson. Uh, the first is that when he was in the jungle, amidst all the, the tigers, he brought his Bible with him. And so when he wasn't staring into a grave, thankfully he was reading his Bible. 
And that seemed to stabilize him. I think kept him from going over the edge. But secondly, what seemed to really bring him out of his depression was he got news that his younger brother had professed faith in Christ before he died. Now notice, his brother died, but this actually really lifted Adoniram's spirits because he'd been troubled for years about his brother's soul. And what this did is it reminded him, look, God actually is at work. If my brother can come to faith, I've been praying for him for years, God actually is at work in the people around me, in the world, in my life. And he clung to that truth. And that's, that's the same truth that we see in the Christmas story. So here's our second point. God actually hears our prayers. And he is working for our good. This is what the angel came to tell Zechariah. Here's the next section. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So a couple of questions. Number one, why is it that people are always so afraid when they meet an angel? Have you noticed that? They're always scared. Everyone, we're going to see in the Christmas story, everyone's afraid. Mary's afraid. Joseph's afraid. All the shepherds, everyone's scared of the whole Bible. Why is that? Well, the simple answer is that angels live in the presence of God, which means that when they leave the presence of God, they've absorbed in some way some of his glory. Just like Moses, when he goes up on Mount Sinai, meets with God, comes down glowing. Jesus, when he's transfigured, is glowing. It's, it's a... It's a sense of the holiness of God and sinful people cannot be in the presence of a holy God because it exposes our sin. That's what Isaiah says. It reveals us and we feel dread. We feel a sense of unsettledness and fear. It's like trying to stare into the sun. The brightness is, is too much. So that's what's going on. That's why there's this sense of fear. It makes sense. They've just been in the throne room of God. Now they're here. We, we would be afraid as well. Second question, what was Zechariah praying for? It may seem like this is an obvious question. Here's what it says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So some people would say it seems obvious. He, he must have still been praying for a child, even though he was old. And now the angel said, look, your prayers have been answered. I mean, it seems obvious, but I, I don't think that's actually what he was saying. We don't know for sure, but I would say it's unlikely that that's what he was praying for. I mean, for one thing, the text is very clear. They were old, okay, beyond childbearing years. Now, Zechariah would have known the story of Abraham and Sarah, that God is very capable of, of giving a child to a woman of any age. So he, he knew that. We, we know that. But it doesn't seem like that was on his mind. Because when Gabriel says, look, here's what's going to happen, right, Zechariah's response is not, yes, it's great. I was just praying for that. That's amazing. Praise God. His answer is, what? What, what did you say? child like he hadn't even been thinking of a child. So that's, that's probably why I say it doesn't seem like that's what was on his mind. Uh, what does seem to be, I think, a more likely option is that Zechariah was praying for the salvation of Israel. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, that is what they tended to pray for. The priests would pray for the deliverance of God's people, the salvation of Israel. But two, that is actually what Gabriel is saying. When he's saying you're Elizabeth will have a child, and he goes on to explain he's really talking about the salvation of Israel. 
That is the fulfillment of, of the potential prayer that Zechariah had. Look at, look at verses 14 to 17. Speaking about John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, even if we don't know all of the allusions there, like what it's talking about, it feels weighty, doesn't it? Like it feels like this something significant is being said. Uh, we might know the name Elijah, right? A prophet from the Old Testament, a key prophet from the Old Testament, used by God in mighty ways to confront the idolatry of the people moved in powerful ways. But to Zechariah, it wasn't just the reference to Elijah. It wasn't just that he was comparing his, his son, John, to Elijah that was the big deal. It was the words, the specific words that the angel was using to talk about Elijah. That that would have astounded Zechariah. In fact, anyone, any priest, anyone who knew their Old Testament would have been like, what? What did you say? Because those words, they were the exact words from the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. These were the last words that were spoken before the 400 years of silence. Here they are. If you look, I mean, if you were to turn back in your Bible, you would see them printed there. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. So those were the words left ringing in the ears of God's people when silence descended. And anyone who studied the Old Testament would have, would have known that, would have been looking for that. And now, in the most holy place, a priest of God receives these same words from Gabriel, an angel, about his son. So clearly, God wanted Zechariah to know and us to know, look, there's, there's a continuity here. What I was promising back then, now I'm doing today. It's the same plan. It's kind of like, um, you know, when you're watching a streaming service and you're in the middle of something and then something happens, like someone is screaming in the other room or crying or something, you have to deal with them if you're a parent. And so you close your uh, thing, you close your computer, and then you forget about it. You come back in two days and it's, and it's there. It starts where you left off. It, you know, I've noticed that a lot of my illustrations involve screens. Uh, so let me try something more cultured. You know when you're reading like a book, okay? And... Uh, and you're reading like a great novel, like by Hemingway or Shakespeare, right? One of the great novelists. And, um, and you have to stop reading your book. And so you take your ornate leather bookmark and you put it in the book and you close the book and you put it on the shelf and then you come back to it two days later and it's in the same place and the story continues. It's like that, okay? <laughs> except, except when you pause a book, um, uh, nothing happens when you're gone, right? The book just stays there. It's, the story stops. But here what we see is that actually the story's been continuing. That God has been continuing to work. Gabriel says to uh, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, meaning God hasn't been absent or inattentive or inactive. He's been working behind the scenes, waiting for the perfect time to allow his plans to unfold, which is what we're going to see in the story of Christmas. But one question I think that often comes to our mind with this kind of thing is, okay, that's great, but, but God, why... Why so long? I mean, 400 years is a long time. If you had a plan like that, why, 
Your people were under oppression, under tyranny from the Romans? Why so long? Why so long for Zechariah and Elizabeth? I mean, if you knew you were going to give them a child, why wait almost their whole life to give them a child? Why not in the 20s or 30s? There's so many situations in our life where we say, God, why, why is it taking so long? Why is this trial going on for so long? Why this relational conflict? Why this illness? Why so hard? Why so long? It's an understandable question. I've, I've asked this question. There are some things in life that it, it seems so obvious that they should be over quickly. Like if there's a loving God in my life who is powerful in my life, this, this should not go on for very long. And yet God seems to be silent or inactive. So to answer this question though, let, let's do this first. Let's look at the content of the prophecy. Let's look at what God actually says he will do and then let's judge his timing, Okay. So what does God say he's going to do through John? Well, he says that John will be great before the Lord, which later Jesus echoes. Uh, Luke 7, 18, Jesus says of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, which is pretty amazing. From Adam to now, except for Jesus, he's the greatest. Why? Because his heart was most closely aligned with God's heart. He would minister in the spirit and power of Elijah himself and the effect of his ministry would be incredible. Uh, look at verse 17. He would turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what, he, what it's saying there is the effect of John's ministry would be that it would soften the hearts of the people so that there would be reconciliation between father and son, those who were, who were hard-hearted. By the power of God, uh, he would get them ready for the Messiah. The, the Messiah of God, which is what we see in the ministry of John. If we jump ahead to Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 3, here's what it says when John started to do his thing. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7 and 8, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So it sounds a lot like uh, Hosea or the other Old Testament prophets, right? Confronting people in their sin. Not allowing people just to kind of go through the motions of faith. He's saying, hey, examine your heart, right? Examine your motivations. Do you really love the Lord? If so, then repent. And look at the effect that this has. Verses 15 and 16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So as John preached, the hearts of the people were kindled. They, they, they saw their sin more clearly. They repented. They wanted to draw closer to God. And that got them thinking like, well, wait a second, John. We're, the Messiah is coming. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we should be waiting for? They were so excited in expectation of what God was doing. And at that moment, John revealed his greatness. Because he said, it's not me. He stepped aside. He said, there's one who's coming who is greater and pointed them to Jesus. That's why John is the greatest. He got the cold, hard hearts of the people ready for Christ and never took any glory for himself. This is what God was beginning to do. This is the message from Gabriel. Now, let's stop for a minute and think about the contents of this message. What did, what did God say? What was he saying to Zechariah in this moment? He was saying, a childless, barren woman would conceive a child. A sinfully divided people would be reconciled to each other. A disobedient people would submit to, 
to the word of God, a doubtful and wayward people would be made ready for the Messiah. What do all these things have in common? I think one way to describe them was to say these, these are all impossible things for us. These are all things that for us, on our own strength, would be totally and truly impossible. For those of you who've been estranged from a family member, for some reason, you know the impossibility of trying to affect change in someone else's heart. That their hard heart that you know needs to be softened. It, it's impossible for us to do that in our own strength. And what makes it harder is that we tend to have a hard heart. So when we go try to talk about it, it actually gets worse sometimes. That, that's the impossibility of trying to bring reconciliation just in our own human strength. The same thing exists for all of the relationships in our lives. After years of conversation, years of prayer, we still end up sometimes in the same place. It all seems impossible, but, but just for us, not for the Lord. This is the kind of work that God does. Now the point here, the point here isn't that this will for sure happen in the timing that you want. Like if you're praying for it, it's gonna happen like an angel's gonna come tonight and visit you and tell you, here's everything. It's not, it's not saying that. The point here for us is this. Who else but God can actually work in stuff like this? Like who else can even handle impossibility? It's like impossibility is God's preferred media. You know what I mean? You know, like an artist, right? They're artists, they have a preferred, they like to work in certain things. All the grandmasters, Van Gogh, like to work in oil paints. That was, that was their preferred media. They would use it in such a way to bring incredible, incredible light, incredible beauty. It was amazing. Uh, watercolors, others choose watercolors. Georgia O'Keeffe is a painter, just a master at that. You look at it, it's just beautiful, incredible. Michelangelo, plaster, stone, carving stone into, into human figures, that they are able to create because of the gifts that God has given them just a beautiful masterpiece. God is able to do that with things that are impossible in our lives. When he works, he uses the impossible things to create the most beautiful realities that perfectly reflect his glory and his majesty and his power and his love. That, that is what the Christmas story is all about. Angels proclaiming the good news that God is still at work not just in the easy things, not just in the hard things, but in the impossible things, reconciling a sinful people to a holy God. How, how would that ever be possible? How would we ever have peace in this world, this sinful fallen world? The answer is the, the child, not John, but the one to come. As for timing, well, I would just say that people don't usually question master artists about their timing. Okay, Michelangelo took five years in the Sistine Chapel. No, no one at the end of it was like, you could have done that quicker, Michelangelo. <laughs> right? The, the work speaks for itself. We simply marvel at the beauty of the work. And we, as the people of God, need to recognize, look, God, God does hear our prayers. He is always working for our good, especially in the areas that are impossible for us, and he's doing it in his perfect timing. So the third point is built on all of that which is sort of a point of application, which is simply this. If that's, if that's true, which we see it is, then we should believe his words. We, we should believe God's words. Here's the last uh, section of text where Zechariah does not, does not believe. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you 
and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah's uh, lack of faith was obviously a huge fail, um, a real embarrassment, frankly, uh, is ironic, right? This righteous, blameless priest is doubting the explicit answers to his prayers. But I think we know what this is like. Uh, we, we know what it's like when things have seemed hopeless for a while and we've gotten out of the habit of actually trusting that God is going to move. Uh, we, we can respond this way with doubt, with, with hopelessness, uh, even in the face of uh, not an angel perhaps, but the word of God in front of us. And the very clear message here is, is he should have believed. That, that's the whole point of this section. Uh, uh, verse 19 is a very searing rebuke, right? Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. Zechariah, wake up. Are you, a, are you a priest or what? Do you remember me from Daniel? What's wrong with you? Wake up. It would have been very embarrassing for, for Zechariah to, to exit the temple. He was supposed to... Uh, proclaim a blessing on the people. Everyone would have been there waiting and he couldn't speak. Very humbling. Nine months he had to think about what he should have said. Uh, nine months to feel the weight of hearing the very words of God and not responding with praise and joy. They were probably a, a hard nine months, but they were very fruitful in Zechariah's heart because when John is born... The words that pour out of Zechariah's mouth, I mean, he's just been thinking about what all this means. There's a whole song that he sings. I want to read you just the last four verses of what Zechariah says. When he finally can, able, uh, can respond in faith. Look at verse 76 of Luke 1. And you, child, speaking about John, who's just been born, and you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. After the rebuke, after the nine months, it seems really clear that, that Zechariah, he really believes. I mean, he believed before, but now he, he really believes. He's full of the spirit, full of the promises of God. The doubt has been purged from him. And I think the lesson for us is we should hunger for that kind of faith before we are rebuked. But before we, we express our lack of faith, we should be satisfied and filled and, and excited about the fact that there is an answer to the deepest longings of our heart. God has moved, right? Our, our salvation is evident that Jesus came is evident that he will answer our prayers. And if Jesus brought our salvation to all people, a sinful people, then, then the argument can be made if he's going to do that amazingly impossible thing, he's going to work in all the other areas of our lives. It's like it says, um, Zechariah says, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Whatever darkness we've been experiencing now, the sun has risen. There is light that can be poured into all of these areas that seem impossible. 
that, that seem like, like God has just been inattentive or, or not working, that the Christmas story reminds us, no, God is at work. God has heard our prayers and everything that he says will come to pass. And so we should believe his words. And it's probably a good, a good time to stop and think, have I, have I not been believing some of his words? If there's areas of, of hopelessness or, or sorrow or depression, it, it could very well be that there are some words that the Lord has spoken and we just, we just aren't taking them at face value. There's so many encouraging words that we find throughout the New Testament that we are, think for a moment, we're, God says we are adopted into his family like heirs with Christ. We are holy and blameless. We're forgiven, we're loved, we're, we're valued. He's promised to sustain us he promised to give us wisdom if, if we ask for it. He said that all evil in our life will be turned for good, that our bodies will, will be healed, if not in this life, in the life to come, that he, he's gone to prepare a place for us. Look at Hebrews 13, verse five and six. It says, keep your life free from the love of money, meaning all the other things that we might hope and all the other things we may be tempted to look to and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We all have impossible things that we're hoping that God will fix. And, and for many of us, it may just seem like the time for hope is past. But with Jesus, we need to understand the, hope, the time for hope has never passed. If it's not today or tomorrow in this life, it will happen. It will happen as certainly as an angel came to visit Zechariah. And may we be faithful in that. May we be encouraged in that. Because he is working for our good, for his glory. This, this is what the Christmas story is all about. This is, this is hopefully the excitement, the enthusiasm, the joy that we would have in this season. That a fire would burn within us, just like it did when John began to preach. And people began to hear the word of God and the spirit began to move. May we have that same enthusiasm for what God has done and what he will continue to do. And may we remember that there are many, many people that are in those situations where it seems like the time for hope is gone and they have no other hope. But we have the opportunity to bring it to them. So let me close in prayer for us in our own hearts and for what God might do in this Christmas season. Lord Jesus, thank you for the fact that you came into our darkened world and, and you brought light, like the sun rising. You brought light, you brought warmth, you brought hope. And to a people who were, were hanging on by a thread. And Lord, the truth is that, that we can be in that situation still to this day. So Lord, help us to remember in those times where we feel hopeless, in those times where it seems like there's some impossibility, whatever it may be, something that we've tried to change, tried to fix, and it just can't, we can't do it, Lord. Please help us to remember that you are at work even in those situations. And the fact that you can change a sin-hardened heart, the fact that you can raise someone from the dead makes it clear that when it comes to impossibility, that's where you do your best work. So please encourage us, Lord. Help us to be people of faith. Help us not to question your timing but to trust that you are doing things in exactly the right sequence at exactly the right time. And this season, Lord, we pray that more and more people would receive the hope that you bring and that we would have the joy of being a part of that. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.